We're going to find ourselves this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be ending the chapter, verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And if you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, go ahead and grab that Bible in that pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 1014. Page 1014. And uh, this is going to be the last time this year I'm going to be preaching from 1 Peter. We're going to be taking a, a short hiatus uh, for uh, the season of Christmas starting next week where we'll be starting a series that we've entitled The Three Wise Women. We're going to be looking at the ladies of uh, Christmas and find out how uh, women like Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and uh, Anna uh, from the temple uh, had a huge part uh, in walking by faith and not by sight and seeing what God was going to do. And so we'll be doing that on the 16th, the 23rd, and then... Uh, we'll be preaching from that on uh, Christmas Eve. And then uh, we'll kick back up in our series into chapter 2 of First Peter uh, in the first part of the year. And so we'll finish up strong at a great place uh, to stop our time. But let's go ahead and look to this passage before us, First Peter chapter 1. And we'd stand for the reading of God's word, and then I'll ask for God's blessing on our time. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, I'll be reading from the ESV version of the scriptures. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. And the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father God, we have uh, surrounded ourselves around your table. We have been reminded of your grace. In song, Lord, we've been reminded of you being our cornerstone. Lord, we are so thankful for that. We cannot, with any amount of gratitude, tell you how grateful we are for you and your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we are grateful as we hold your word in our hands that you have revealed yourself to us in the written word. And so, Lord, reveal yourself this morning to us. Reveal yourself as the one who does not wither, who does not die. Lord, reveal to us that we have been born again not of perishable seed from our fathers, but of the imperishable through the word of God. Father, that this would lead us to live differently. It would lead us to live by the Spirit, to love our brothers and sisters, and to lean wholly on the word of truth. We're going to need your Spirit's help in this, Lord, and so we ask and invite him into our presence this morning in a real and profound way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. About a month ago, I was asked by a young man in our church if he could have a couple moments with me because he had an important question he wanted to ask. You get nervous as a pastor when a young man comes to you and says he has an important question to ask you. Anything could be on the subject matter of what he was going to ask, and I was profoundly touched by his question that he had. The question was this, what is the big idea when it comes to the Christian life? This young man wanted to know what the whole core of all that we learn, all that we're a part of as Christians, 
what is it that we're really trying to get to? What is the, if you will, the thesis statement of our Christian faith? In many ways, I was blown away by the profound question that he had been wrestling with for some time. But then I was disappointed that this young man, probably 22 or 23 years of age, was still lost on that question. He had grown up in, in the church, and he had Christian parents, and, and I was disappointed that after all these years of ministry that one of our own maybe didn't know exactly why we are Christians and what we are called to be as a result of that. And then I thought about Christianity as a whole, evangelicalism. And I think there's a lot even in, in this room today who have no real idea of what the Christian life is all about. What is the, the core of it? What is the purpose of it? What is our number one job as Christians? And this young man nailed it. And I was maybe directed by the Spirit because a Latin phrase came. And if you know me very well, you know Latin is not something that comes out of Timbadal's mouth very often. But I remember reading an article on the subject uh, of the word on the screen, Coram Deo. And I said, if there's any way that I could explain it to this young man, I said, the whole thesis of the Christian life, the whole focus of the Christian life is Coram Deo. Now, what that word is in Latin is simply a phrase that means before the face of God. You see, for the Christian, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to live Coram Deo each and every one of our days. Not Carpe Diem, Coram Deo. To live before the face of God each and every day. R.C. Sproul writes on this phrase that it is the very essence of the Christian life. I like that. It's of who we are. And what it means is that we as Christians live every moment of every day knowing we are living it in the ultimate presence of God. Whether we are at work or at play, whether at church or at home, we understand that all that we are doing, all that is going on around us is going on under the gaze of an almighty and powerful God. That as Christians we recognize that we have a father who is an impartial judge, Peter says, and that judge oversees everything that is taking place. To be aware of this presence is to be aware of God's sovereignty. There was an unbelieving man who was walking on a journey who would begin to understand this word, Coram Deo, when he saw a great light come from the sky as if it was the noonday sun. He was blinded. The man's name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul saw this and heard this voice, and his response was this, Who is it, Lord? He didn't know who it was, but he did know one thing, that whoever he was talking to was far greater, far more powerful, far more sovereign than Saul would have ever known. And so he affirms his lordship without even knowing his name. You see, brothers and sisters, to live according to Coram Deo is not a reluctant submission, oh, I have to. Oh, the big guy's watching upstairs, so I better be nice. Or he's going to beat me up if I don't be nice, and so I'll do the Christian thing. No, Coram Deo looks at it as the greatest and highest honor and goal to offer oneself as a living sacrifice. 
Paul understood this when Paul articulated in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and this is our acceptable form of worship. This is what God wants to see in his people. He doesn't want the blood of goats and rams, but he wants broken and contrite hearts that say, God, you are God, I am not, and I will live for you. But living this kind of life is a life that needs to live, be lived out in integrity. A life of wholeness that finds unity and cohesiveness under the majesty of God. You say, Tim, what do you mean by all of that? What it means is when we don't live this way as people, we will bring about disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. And you look at the world and you say, well, that's a part of the world. Well, that's what happens when we don't live life as people who are going to give an account. Yet sadly, so many of us as Christians will speak, whether we know the word or not, we will speak of living a life coram deo, but we don't live it in all aspects of life. And what we begin to do is we begin to compartmentalize our life here at church and our life in the world. What we do is we break up life into two segments, the sacred part of life and the secular part of life. And so what happens is, is when you're in the sacred, you, you put on a face, you put on a show, you put on all the right words to speak when you're at church, but when you're in the world, you become like the world. You begin to look and sound like the world around you. And that's okay as long as the secular doesn't infringe on the sacred, and just as important as the sacred not infringing on the secular. Coram Dio says that is an absolute uh, contradiction for the believer. So what does this mean? Quite simply, Coram Dio means whether you are a factory worker, teacher, banker, secretary, salesman, caterer, or homemaker, you and I, when we serve God in those areas, when we work hard and with lives of integrity, knowing that God is the one who is watching out for us as our Heavenly Father, when we serve in those ways, in a way that honors God, you and I serve in just as holy of a way in our workplace and in our schools and in our families as any full-time pastor or missionary or evangelist sharing the gospel. There is no sacred. There is no secular. It's all under God. It is all under His authority. So Coram Dio means, and I keep hitting this because this is a theme I want us as a church to know, it means that when David was a shepherd of his father's flock, obeying his father and obeying the will of God in his life, he was just as holy then shepherding those dumb sheep as he was when he was the king of Israel and the writer of the Psalms. When Paul was making tents, sewing those tents together for the sake of other individuals, maybe even not believers, he was just as holy and just as productive as a Christian as he was when he started the church at Ephesus. No matter where God has you, Coram Dio means that you live life for Him and for His glory because you are living before the face of Almighty God. So this is the big idea. How do we live? How do we practice the presence of God in everyday life? There are three things I want us to see this morning. Because if we don't do it, we're going to contradict ourselves. We're going to contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are going to contradict other Christians as a result of our lives. So we want to get this thing straight. And so the first thing we need to do 
is if we want to live in the presence of God, if we want to practice that presence on a daily basis, it involves living by the Spirit. It involves living by the Spirit. A life that is lived for God is a life that must be in God. What I mean by that is you and I cannot practice the presence of God if we are not believers. Now Romans 1 tells us that the unbelieving world recognizes and knows that there is a God. It says that for although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to Him. Now how did they know God? They look at creation, they look at their fellow humanity and they say, there's got to be something here. And man tries to figure it out. It tries to put all kinds of spins on how we got here and how to, out of nothing something came. And so we try to figure that out, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that there is a God and we can either refuse to worship and glorify Him or we can bow the knee to Him. Now we are told in, in the book of Ephesians where Mario was speaking from, that we were reminded all of us were once darkened in this thinking. All of us lived lives for ourselves. But as Peter said, something happened in the life of the believer. We were chosen by God, we were cleansed by Christ Jesus, and we were changed by the Spirit of God. Now notice what needed to take place. Look back to verse 22. For uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 20. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to move you back even more. Verse 19. It is, but with the precious blood of Christ... Like a lamb without blemish or spot. It was that which was needed to take care of our sin. It was that which was needed. And what did that produce? Notice verse 22. It then brought forth a purification. Having been purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Verse 22 says because of the precious blood of Jesus, you and I now have some opportunities we didn't have before. We have some things going on in our lives that we never did before. And one of those things is, is that we've been purified. We have gone from being guilty to now being innocent. We've gone from being sinners now to being righteous. We've gone from being enemies of God to now being obedient children of the Father, as Peter says. But let's examine what Peter says this involves. Number one, it involves or begins with an initial cleansing, this purification. The word purified here is found in the perfect tense. What it means is something that is complete. You are purified. And now remember, the reason why we are purified is because of God. We can't say, well, I'm purified. Look how clean I am. Look how holy I am. Look at all the great things that I did. I did this. I was the one who came up with this. I was the one who, who made sure that I cleaned behind the ears. No. Notice the reason why we are purified goes back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Because of God's great love for us, He caused us to be born again. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's because of God and His great mercy. Not His ordinary mercy, but His great mercy. That should remind us if it was great mercy that was needed to save us, then it was great sin that we had in our lives. The only thing you and I bring to the salvation plan is our sin and our shame. And God in his great mercy for us caused us to be born again. And in that moment, when you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, when you gave his life, uh, your life to him, you were once and for all purified. That word there is hognizo. And hognizo is a word that was used in the Old Testament to speak of the process where the priests would 
clean himself and, and ceremonially, make himself ceremonially pure. And there was a whole process that would go through this of, of washing and, and putting on special clothes and making sure everything was in order. All of this needed to be done so that that one man could walk into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. The sad thing is you and I can never do that. We can never clean ourselves enough to be in the presence of God. We never could wash enough or use enough shampoo or, or soap to clean ourselves to become morally pure. I thought of this uh, uh, when uh, at one point I, I had to take a uh, food uh, sanitation class. And one of the things that they teach you, and you should be glad of this, is how food operators should wash their hands. And so what the health inspector did who was teaching the class was she got three uh, different uh, volunteers. And she came, had them come up to the top in front of the class, and she says, I want you to put out your hands, and she put this solution on the hands of the people. It was unseen. It looked kind of just like uh, the Purell type stuff. She says, I want you to rub it into your hands real good. And so they rubbed it into their hands. And she says, now I want you to go and wash your hands. And she says, wash them real good. Here's some nail brushes and, and really go at it. Make sure you really clean it. And they're gone for like 10 or 12 minutes, a lot longer than I think the normal food operators wash their hands. But they're gone for a while. And they come back. And the lady says, all right, I want to turn off all the lights in the room. And she pulls out this black light. And when she pulled out the black light, she said, okay, put your hands underneath here. And, and she asked before that, you know, how good are your, how, hand, how clean are your hands? And they go, oh, man, I really, man, I took care of them. I cleaned them and all that. And, and she says, well, if that's the case, there should be no lights coming from your hands. It should be just dark. It should, should look regular. But if there's dirt, if there's, if you will, the solution... They'll shine like stars on your hand. So the first guy's all excited. Oh, I really did a good job and everything. We were blinded <laughs> by the light. One guy said in behind me, did you even go and wash your hands? And he's like, I did. And then this lady came up and she says, oh, I've been in food service for many years. I really washed them. Look how wrinkly my hands are and all of that. I really made sure I washed them. And again, we're blinded by it. And here's the thing. It's like us spiritually. We can try and scrub and clean and all of that, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear even our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. We can't clean ourselves up. And so here's the amazing thought. With the precious blood of Jesus, you and I are as white as snow. We're purified. There's no more need for cleansing. There's no more need of cleaning. We've been purified. Now notice what Peter says. It isn't our bodies that are just clean, but it's our psyche, our souls. It speaks of the heart of who we are. What that word psyche or soul, psyche is the Greek where we get the word psychology from. It is the very core of who we are, the very essence of who we are. And I want you to understand this. Our cleaning isn't skin deep. It goes to the very core of who we are, to the very essence of who we are, and as a result of that, you and I now, because all of us has been made clean, we now have the capability to pursue ongoing holiness because God hasn't just washed the inside, but he's washed everything. Now, the book of Ezekiel talks about this. Write this passage down. I won't have you look it up, but Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 
through 27 says this, speaking of this cleansing that has taken place. He says the following, And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says there's a heart transplant that's going on. God takes all of our impurities, he takes them, and he puts the righteousness of Christ. We call that imputation. The imputation of Christ's righteousness onto us. So when Christ sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, not our sins or our failures. But notice, this heart transplant is going to bring about ongoing purity and righteousness. And what that then means is that uh, this living by the Spirit isn't just so we can walk around and say, I'm clean, I'm clean, look how clean I am. But it should produce an ongoing commitment. It should produce an ongoing commitment. The work of God that He does in our lives has long and lasting effects. Ezekiel says, we are to walk in His statutes. As a result of being made clean, you and I are called to be people of the Word. As a result of what God has done in Ezekiel, we are to be careful to obey all of His commands. Now let's fast forward back to the New Testament, to Peter's words. And Peter says that the cleansing takes place at the new birth, and as a result of it, it has now long-lasting ramifications. What that means is, because you are pure, now... Let me rephrase that. Because you're pure, because of some time in the past, you now have the opportunity to continue to be holy and pure in the days to come. Now what God has done in the past, now he allows you to do in the future. What that means is, is you and I have now an opportunity to live upright and holy lives. We have the opportunity to get up and to be pure and faultless in the eyes of God. We couldn't have done that before our salvation but now we can. We call that the process of sanctification. The work that God does in partnership with man as we work together, as God by His Spirit empowers us, we have the opportunity to become like Christ, to live for Him, to be guided by Him, and as a result of that, to be upright and holy in a depraved and crooked world. So we get to engage in this. We get to engage in the life of holiness and purity. Now this purity doesn't grow our purity in front of God. God, we're as pure as we were the moment we bowed the knee. But the ramifications that come are the ramifications of how we experience that purity and how others around us experience it as well. The only way to explain it is to explain what happened on this stage on December 27th, 1997. There's a good-looking guy standing right here, a beautiful woman standing right here, and then my old man was standing right here. If you don't tie all that together, Amanda and I got married here. And we got married on December 27, 1997. From that day on, we've always been married. We're as married as we're ever going to be. It's not like we can get a booster marriage. You know, you go in and the doctor gives you a shot. Well, that just kind of boosts things up. Some of marriages in here need a booster. Okay? But it doesn't come. You're as married as you're going to be. But let me tell you something. Almost now 15 years 
into this marriage, God has shown me so much more than that green guy over here was, wet behind the ears, what I thought marriage was going to be. It's changed my life. Talk about being ignorant. I thought marriage was, yeah, we're going to have some fun and, and we're going to um, have a nice times together and we'll have some family. Never would I have thought that one person could get as close to another person and we're just 15 years into this. And yet that's what Peter is talking about. You're as pure as you're going to be. Your relationship is solid. It's on a foundation that will not shift. It will not go away. Now grow in that. Don't worry, you're never going to lose it. Now grow in it. Use that purity that God has given you to have greater intimacy, greater opportunities, and greater fellowship with the God of the universe. That's what Peter is saying. Now notice what he's telling us is, is that we need to obey the truth. As disciples of Jesus Christ, the disciples' last words they heard from Jesus were to go and make disciples. And to go and make disciples, they were to do some things. A disciple is one who is called to do something, and that is obey. Obedience, I want you to write this down, obedience involves two things. The Greek word, in the Greek word for obedience has a two-pronged meaning. It means to hear and to heed. To hear and to heed. And so when you see Peter say in our text, by your obedience to the truth. What Peter is saying is, by your hearing of the truth and by your heeding of the truth, you are to live now a sincere love for your brothers. So a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ is to hear. The reason why we need to hear is how can you obey if you haven't heard? If you don't know the instructions, how can you obey them? So we hear what the gospel says. We hear what the life of holiness calls us to, but then we have to heed it. James tells us we can't simply be hearers of the word, but we must be doers of the word as well. And so Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples who hear the word and who heed the word. And there's a couple things they're going to do. Number one, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to get baptized. And we're going to have that happen later on today. And people are going to say, the first step of obedience that I've been called to because now I've been pure is the, uh, if you will, God-authorized way of telling the world, I've heeded the word, I'm, I've heard the word, I knew I was going to mess it up, I've heard the word, and I've heeded it. And so what the people who are going to be baptized today is going to say, I heard the gospel, but it didn't just go in one ear and out the other, but now I did something about it, I bowed the knee, I repented of my sins, and I've given my life fully to Christ, and I'm now going to declare it. And that's what baptism is all about. And so if you've never been baptized, I just want to once again, I do this every time the subject of baptism comes up. If you have not followed Jesus in this way, you've heard the word, but you've not heeded it. Now let me remind you, baptism doesn't say what these people are doing isn't purifying them. It's just a response saying, I heard the gospel, and now I've done something about it. Now let me declare it to you. Now notice in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says we are commanded then to do all that Christ, we're, we're told to obey all that Christ has commanded us to. And so the life of the Spirit is one that lives in obedience to the Word of God. So we're pure, we're as pure as we'll ever be, 
but the life of Christ by obeying the truth allows us to see that purity manifested in its life. That fellowship is allowed to grow, and it's going to lead to something. It's going to lead to my second point, and that is it involves loving other Christians. Now we've got this thing down. We've got to live by the Spirit. Now we need to love other Christians. Verse 22b tells us the following that we have come to an obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. As we grow in our walk with God, there's going to be some growth areas. And the first growth area that you're going to have is love for your fellow brothers and sisters here in this church. Throughout Scripture, we are called to love one another. Peter no doubt remembers in the last moments of Christ's life that his master Jesus would speak to them in the upper room about loving each other. Jesus would even go to showing them in picture, indeed, taking a basin and a towel and serving those around him. This is how you love. This is how you serve. Peter was there and heard with his own ears when Jesus prayed his uh, high priestly prayer, when Jesus said that he desires for you and I to be one just as Christ and the Father are one. This is the kind of unity that he wants. This is the kind of love that he's asking for. Now, the Apostle Paul would hit on these issues as well when he says that we should love and be kind to all, but we should make special effort for those who are a part of the household of God. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.12, we are called to continually do all that we can to see this love for our fellow believers grow. Now, notice what Peter says. He speaks of a sincere brotherly love. The love, that word love there in the Greek is the word Philadelphia, of course, the city of brotherly love. You got it. That love is a love that is seen in a close-knit family where young people are treated by the older people as sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons, where the younger individuals in the family treat with honor and respect their parents and their grandparents. This is the kind of love that is seen when the old are endeared to the young and the young respect and honor the old. Where brothers look at the sisters in Christ as sisters and as women look at the men in the church as brothers serving one another. Now, this is what families should look like. Now, some of you say, hey, Tim, the last thing I want to see is the church looking like my family. I mean just come on over in a couple weeks and you'll see how absolutely dysfunctional how selfish my family really is so the last thing I want to see is Village Bible Church become my kind of family's love well that's why I think Paul adds the word sincere he must have been around some of your families I'm sorry Peter says this he adds the word sincere meaning without pretense that which is genuine free from deceit authentic undisguised this word means that we love one another with a love that is unhypocritical. What that means is you and I don't treat each other one way when we're face to face. Oh yeah, you, you're a great guy. I really like you. You're, you're, you're so smart and so knowledgeable. And you get in the car and you're like, that blowhard, can you believe him? I mean, that guy's so full of himself. I mean, come on. I mean, does he really think he can teach the Bible? Do you th does he really think that he's all that? I mean, come on, the guy's a jerk. Have your response been that way with brothers and sisters in Christ? Or is it simply you just act, you just smile, and you don't like the person at all. You have no desire to spend any time with them. 
Peter says it must be sincere. Now, the sincere brotherly love has some components to it. Number one, it must include all believers. Now, I'm speaking a little bit from silence here, but I want you to notice in the text what it doesn't say. It says that we are to have a sincere brotherly love and love one another earnestly, except the ones you don't like to hang out with. Notice it doesn't say, love one another earnestly as long as they're in your peer group. Love one another earnestly as long as they have their life put together. Love one another earnestly when they're not going to bother you with their problems. No, brothers and sisters, we are to love all. We're to love all. And as this church continues to grow, it's going to be harder and harder for us to live out this command because to love means we're going to have to try to know. And I know some of us here in this place say, I already got who I'm going to love. You can only love so much. And so I love my handful of people. And sorry, you don't get to be a part of the Tim Bedall show. You don't get my love. Do you see that in the text? No, the Bible says we are to love all with a sincere love church has to be such a such a great place of love that when the Bible says that at times we may have to discipline those to the fullest extent when someone is living in sin the church is called at times when they won't listen to anybody including the church that the last resort that the church has is to take that individual and to uh, remove them from the fellowship of the church and you say well what does that do I mean that's not gonna do much if the church is that place of love and care and at loving community the Bible says that that person who has been removed will have a deep and profound loss because they're no longer a part of the community of faith. Their friends, the ones they love, the people are closest to them, the ones that have bared their burdens are no longer there. And so I asked the question this morning, who in this church can you not love that way? Who in this church is your enemy? Who in this church, and I've heard this, a lot of people say, well, I don't have any enemies at the church, and praise God for that. But what I hear a lot of, and I've heard it a lot in the last couple weeks and months, is there's too much water under the bridge. And so we'll go to church, and, and, I, and I may say hi to them, but that's all we're going to get. Brothers and sisters, that is a contradiction to what the Word of God says. We can't not love. We're called to love. Now you say, well, I didn't invite these people in there. I'm not the one who told them to come. Well, brothers and sisters, the people who are a part of our church was not under our authority, just as much as our brothers and sisters and our family weren't chosen for us. The only thing that we are responsible for is our response to them. We are called to love, and we are called to love all. Notice, if we're going to do this, it's going to involve a right attitude. It's going to involve a right attitude. Notice he says that it's going to involve... A sincere brotherly love that comes from a pure heart at the end of verse 22 you can't fake love for long and some of you are trying you know you, 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 you pretend to love this place you pretend to love the people and you can do it for a while but here's the problem it's gonna come out I've seen this in my boys my boys are fighting and we we get a truce and I bring the two together and I say okay all right say you're sorry and tell your brother you love him and so this is what happens. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm like, come on, you can do better than that. Come on, like you mean it. I'm sorry, and I love you. 
Some of you are doing that with your love for one another. If I've got to do it, I'll do it. But it's only because I'm told to. That's not what Peter is saying. What he's saying is that this love is to be pure. Now notice the bookend there. We are pure, and because of that, we can live lives of purity that will lead to relationships that are pure. You and I, because we have a walk with God, now can have a walk with one another. Why are there wars? Why is there strife? Why is there all kinds of dissension? Because people don't have a right relationship with God. I'm going to tell you this right now. Amanda would not like her husband if he didn't walk with the Lord. Because I would be selfish, I would be callous, I would be unloving, and I'd give a rip about what's going on in our family and our life. But it is when I see that I'm a sinner and I need God in my life that I become a loving husband, I become a caring father, I become one who is selfless instead of selfish. Some of us can't love others because we haven't started loving God. When we start loving God and understanding what God has done for us, then it's really easy to start loving other people. This purity of affection is that which the unbeliever will see in us and say they are Christians because of how they love one another. It's one of our greatest outreaches. Notice that it can't just be a love in mind and in heart, but it must be seen in action. Notice verse 22, we are to love earnestly. Far too many of us love with a generic kind of love. It's what we're supposed to do. And so we go through the motions, but Peter ups the ante. Love is going to be more than a tacit effort of affection. The word now, notice in the text, and it's important, and this is why understanding some of the original languages are important, is notice in the text he says, having purified your souls for obedience to the truth for a sincere Philadelphia, agape one another earnestly. What he says is, is this brotherly love that we're going to have comes from a singular agape love that we're going to have, this selfless love, this all-giving love, this all-consuming fire to love one another, this earnest love is going to allow the community of believers to be a church of brotherly love. And so what that means is you and I just can't say, well, this is my family, love them or leave them, they're here, they're who we got. And so I loved him, I took care of it. No, to get brotherly love out of the whole of us, we all have to come with an agape love, with a selfless love ready to serve and to honor and to care for. This is what we need to do. Well, how do we do it? How are we living this out in action? I don't have a lot of time, and my last point isn't very long, but let me go through some ways that you can do it just from the Scriptures. Sometime when you get a chance, Google the one another commands, and you will see these come up. How do you show love? You're never going to write these all down, so don't try. Be at peace with each other. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Greet one another. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for one another. Serve one another in love. Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another and clothe yourself with humility as you love one another. And that's not all of them. You want to know how to serve one another in love the Bible prescribes it and when we live this out Village Bible Church will be a place that all will want to be a part of because it's a place of love and the presence of God will have changed us in such a way that we'll live differently than the world does now finally the way that we live in the presence of God is we lean on the Word of God I didn't say this before, but just so you know, I'm reusing last week's last point. If you didn't know that or not, we're just going to rehash this one because I didn't think you guys got it the first time. Okay? So notice verse 23. We're leaning. We're trusting on the Word of God. Now notice verse 23 says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And then he quotes Scripture for all like flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of the grass the grass withers the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever and this is the word which is the good news that was preached to you let me land this plane quickly number one because we have been born again we need to understand some of the spiritual biology that came into this now I don't want to get into this too much but you and I were born because mom and dad got together okay I'm gonna leave it at that Okay? If you have any questions, talk to Pastor Keith. Okay? Spiritually, to be born, two things had to come together. Peter tells us what it is. He says the Word of God was the seed, not seed like your father's seed that was corruptible because we'll all die. And so it's, it's perishable. It's corruptible. But it is an incorruptible, imperishable seed. Now that seed has to have, if you will, something to fertilize. And that which is fertilized is the human soul. It's the heart. It's that which is needing spiritual change and rebirth. And so the Word of God comes, and it's preached to us. It's the good news that is preached to us, and it is implanted in our hearts. Now, we have a a decision to make. We can receive that with gratitude or we can reject it. In that rejection, that seed does not get implanted and we live in our sin. But when we respond in obedience to the call of God in our lives, we receive that and new birth takes place. And because that new birth takes place, because the Word of God is that which implants that truth, there's some things we need to do. Number one, we need to devote ourselves to this Word. We need to devote ourselves to this Word. Once we realize the place that this Word has in our lives, that it is living and abiding, Peter says, 
that it produces results, that it guarantees its total success, that it doesn't come back void. It meets us right where we're at. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness because this word is a double-edged sword able to cut through to get to the crux of the matter. Because of all that this word is, you and I must be people of the word. We have a great treasure. We see our guide. We have our pillar of truth. When you begin to see the word of God as being this in your life, it will be like steroids to your Bible study. It'll be like steroids to your devotional time. But far too many of us see this as something that's dispensable, that's perishable. Peter says it will live forever. It will stand forever. So as a result of that, we've devoted ourselves to it, but now we need to do what it says. I would, just very quickly, very important, very deep. I want you to get this. I've studied hard for this. It is called the living and abiding word of God. And if it's called the word of God, then you and I should probably do what it says, right? That word God means God. The big guy upstairs, the one in charge, the majestic, magnificent one, the one who created you in your mother's womb, the one who has knit you together, the one who has made you exactly who you are, this God who created the world and all that is in it has a word for you. And wouldn't it be good for you as a follower of Jesus Christ to do what it says? to say I'm going to obey that I'm going to devote myself to it and then when it tells me to do something I'm going to do it even when it tells me to, I have to do the hard things even when I want to do something else that I'll heed the word of God and I will do exactly what it says so we need to devote ourselves to it we need to do what it says we need to declare it to others the things of this world are going to pass away the flowers, the grass, they're all withering away. And so is our flesh. You don't believe me? Drive by a cemetery. Just go by a cemetery. You'll see a whole bunch of withering going on. And what you will know is that we have something that does not perish, something that will abide forever. And as a result of that, if we're all dying and the one thing that, that lives is the Word of God, then shouldn't it be something we share with others? Shouldn't it be something that we're giving to dying people? Here is your opportunity for eternal life. Here is the opportunity to have a relationship with God. I know you're dying. I know you're withering away. I know you see this world going to hell in a handbasket. But here is life. Here is Christ, the Savior of our souls. When we start living by the Spirit and loving other Christians and leaning on the Word of God, we are three steps closer to totally living in the presence of God. Because when we live that way, we can stand confidently in the here and now before God. And when we live a life like that, we are told we'll be able to stand before the face of Christ. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's live to that end. Let's live lives, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. No matter where we find ourselves this week, let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and thank you for your word. Lord, my prayer is simply this. We've heard the word. Now let us do what it says. Whether we find ourselves at work or at school, at home, with friends or family or by ourselves, that we would obey the truth of God and trust that it will be what you say it will be in our time of need. Empower us by your spirit now as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.